Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. Did you feel uncomfortable when Bill first read that, those words? God's judgment of the nations. Do you feel uncomfortable with that? Talking about God's judgment to your non-church friends. Do you find that easy? We can find it awkward, even feel embarrassed by God's judgment. But it wouldn't be worth being a Christian if the Lord didn't judge. Tonight I have two points. First, the Lord who judges is the God we want. And secondly, the Lord who judges is the God we don't want. So the first point, the Lord who judges is the God we want. The Old Testament prophet Joel began with a lament over the devastation a locust plague was bringing to Israel. Devastating, but not totally destroying, we learnt that sadly it was a taste, only a taste of the judgment of God on the people. And it had God's desired effect. It woke the people up and led to their genuine repentance. The people responded to the prophet's encouragement to turn back to God while there was time. And so those words Dave's already reminded of us tonight, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. They tore their heart from worshipping their idols or from living for their wealth or whatever it was they were doing were never told actually in Joel. But their genuine repentance, you'll remember, leads to God responding to them in a great blessing. Materially, there's great restoration in their land and spiritually, there's a promise that every one of God's people is going to be personally indwelt by his spirit and experience deliverance from their sin. And last week, Morris highlighted for us what the people needed to do. They, they needed to call on the Lord for salvation. At verse 32 there of chapter 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that is really neat. Don't you reckon it would have been really good if God had stopped sending his prophet-inspiring current to Joel at the end of chapter 2. It would have been taste of judgment leads to repentance, responded to by the people, which leads to forgiveness and blessings, both material and spiritual. would be a lovely little story, three-week sermon series, very neat. But our God is bigger in the world, the locusts weren't the only problem God's people had. The biggest problem for Israel over their life was the other nations. Over the years, Israel had been ravaged and robbed by various nations. And when you find yourself bullied by other nations, then the Lord who judges is the God you want. And that's exactly what Joel 3 is all about, judgment on the nations Judgment on the nations who have abused Israel. Now the day which threatened Israel has been avoided. It's actually now the turn of the nations to face the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That God has an issue with the nations, you pick up straight away when you look 
uh, in the first chapter there, sorry, in chap- verse, first verse there in chapter 3 on page 783. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance. You know, after World War II, the Nazi leadership and and followers were put on trial for their crimes against Europe, especially against the Jews, in Nuremberg, placing city in Germany. And here in the valley of Jehoshaphat is God's version of the Nuremberg trials. The nations are on trial for their crimes against Israel. The nations who opted to attack and plunder Israel now have to face this irresistible summons from God to appear at their own trial. So look at verse 11. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. It's clear when you read that that the verdict's already been decided. So the sickle is swung by the Lord's warriors. Are they angels? I guess so. And the result is a horrible image, like the grapes in the wine press. The nations are trampled there at verse 13. And it happens because of the nation's wickedness, in particular what they did to Israel. The Nuremberg trials in 1945 were the first time the notion of a crime against humanity was ever prosecuted. In Joel here, it's crimes against Israel that appear in the indictments against the nations. And you get an idea of what these crimes were as you scan through chapter 3. It sounds like what happened to the people of Israel when many of them got exiled to Babylon in the 6th century. So Joel talks of how the nations scattered my people among the nations, how they divided up my land. Um, We know that in the exile, when the people got deported to Babylon... Other people, foreigners, moved in and took over the homes that they vacated. People were made slaves and then others gambled and sold them to raise money for prostitutes or wine. And the silver and gold, precious things of the temple, were robbed. And the the nations, there's various nations who are specifically named, but you can sort of tell that it's, it's general, it's being generalised, that they represent a, a general charge against all the nations who've abused and bullied God's people. So you notice verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Valley of decision, verdict valley. Verdict valley is to be the venue for the day of the Lord's judgment being executed on the nations. Now, imagine yourself, you're an Israelite, you go to the temple and somehow Joel gets the Guernsey on the preaching roster and he gets up and he speaks this prophecy. What are you feeling as an Israelite who's experienced or knows your parents' experience of the bullying of the nations? 
What would you think if you heard Joel announcing chapter 3? Would you be feeling uncomfortable about the Lord's plan to judge? Would you feel awkward, even embarrassed by God's judgment on the nations? You wouldn't, would you? The Lord who judges is the God we want when faced with injustice or bullying in our lives. A God who can protect and vindicate his people. A God who can't protect and vindicate his people is not worth having. In fact, he isn't really God if he can't exercise his sovereign power over the enemies of his people. We should be glad, not embarrassed, that the Lord has promised to judge the nations for mistreating his people. Or are you happy that Christians are persecuted for being Christian and practising their faith in 50 countries of the world today? Are you happy that thousands will be killed for their faith in this year alone? Are you happy that there are thousands in prison across the world right now for their faith? If you're not happy, then be glad that as the Apostle Paul told the people in Athens, the Lord has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Of course, the one the Apostle Paul is speaking about is the Lord Jesus Christ, who as the risen king is the one with God's authority to judge the world. If you've personally felt unjust ridicule, scorn or mistreatment, because of your belief or how you choose to live, then be thankful too that your God is the Lord who judges. We're encouraged in in Romans 12 that when we're wronged this way, that we are, Jesus says to turn the other cheek. In Romans 12 it says, "Leave, leave the judgment to the Lord. It's mine to avenge. Entrust yourself to the Lord. I don't know what happened in Joel's life after he uttered this prophecy, but I know that judgment on the nations didn't come immediately. It probably didn't happen as Joel anticipated when he pronounced the prophecy. Nothing like what's described in Joel chapter 3 has ever happened. Joel never lived to see the promised vindication of Israel. And the persecuted Christians around the world today are still waiting on God's timing. We know it'll happen because the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. But with the people of Israel in Joel's time, with the early Christians featured in the pages of the New Testament, we're to wait patiently on the Lord's timing. Our second reading today was an extract from the book of Revelation in chapter 14. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is that it's written to the persecuted Christians in the first century who are having a horrible time at the hands of uh, the Roman emperor and others. And it's written to say, Jesus has won, even if it doesn't look like it. Hang on there in your faith. All these horrible things that are happening to you are just part of of what's going to happen. But ultimately, you'll be vindicated. Through the book of Revelation, there's this little picture you get regularly of of God's faithful one. How long, O Lord, crying out to the Lord. 
The language in that scene in chapter 14 today is really similar to Joel. There's this one like a son of man wielding a sharp sickle over the earth to harvest the earth and throw people into the great winepress of God's wrath. Now, don't take that literally. Revelation relies on really graphic picture language to make its point. I don't expect that Jesus will yield a big sickle when he comes back to judge the world. But what uh, is the point is that Jesus will judge. He will judge the nations. What also is interesting is what is said immediately before this scene to God's faithful people to encourage the writers, the readers of Revelation as they live through their persecution. So let's turn up to page 14. Sorry, not page 14, Revelation 14. It's page 1070. Actually, let's look over on 1071. And I want you to pick it up at verse 12. Having described uh, a terrible experience due to the work of uh, the, the devil's messengers... At verse 12, the writer John says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they'll rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. God's people you see here are to remain faithful to Jesus, patiently enduring any persecution and trusting that live or die before Jesus returns, they'll be vindicated and it'll have been worth it. They are to live being glad that the Lord who judges is the one they have. Don't misunderstand me, not glad that people are judged and feel God's wrath, No, glad that their stand for Christ is recognised and vindicated and made worthwhile in the end. The Lord Lord God doesn't, uh, we're told in the Old Testament, doesn't have joy in judging people. He'd much prefer people to repent and be saved, which is why you think, why do people have to wait so long? Why do people like the persecuted Christians have to go through this for so long? Well, the New Testament tells us it's because God in his patience is holding back the final coming of Christ to judge the world, allowing more time for the nations to turn to him. So if you feel uncomfortable when we talk about God's judgment like this, Whenever you feel uncomfortable, don't deny it or minimise it. Pray for people to understand it. Pray for people to feel its full weight and to repent. There's no joy at people's judgement, so it should drive us to be prayers. I've shared before that I often like to swim my laps late at night at Freshwater Pool, and I love to... uh, as a as I'm getting dry, look across at the lights in Queenscliff and Manly. And what I try to do uh, really consistently, probably weekly, is I pray for the lights. Sorry if you don't live in Queenscliff. Pray for you another time. I pray for the people of Queenscliff, all those thousands, 
uh, that God will help them to recognise who Jesus is and that they need to know him as their Saviour and their Lord. I pray that because the Lord who judges is the God we want. But of course, sometimes we can think that the Lord who judges is the God we don't want. Maybe when Jesus says words like these, when he spoke from Matthew 25, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's from Jesus' famous parable of the sheep and the goats. And I reckon Jesus had Joel 3 in mind when he, set, when he started off. This is how he, he kicks it off. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Here we have Jesus, and just like that picture in Joel, all the nations are gathered before him. And he makes a judgment. He separates the people into two categories. But it's not Israel and the nations here. No, the shocking thing for Jesus' hearers and for the people featured in the parable is that Jesus' criteria for making sheep and goats is is dis- and therefore deciding who as a sheep lives to have eternal heavenly inheritance or who's consigned to eternal punishment in hell, the test is whether or not someone has cared for his people. Just as in Joel, the nations are judged for abusing and bullying God's people, here Jesus is saying that the people of the world will be judged on how true on how they treat a true follower of his. That's how Jesus will recognise genuine faith. As they treat one of his people, so they treat him and reveal their faith position toward Jesus. So these words you'll recognise. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. What all this means, of course, is that it isn't just big bad Babylon or Egypt or Edom or Tyre or Sidon that are in God's sights for judgment. It's a whole lot of people, including people in your family, nice people at the shops, that community-minded cyclist for cancer in the Manly Daily Maybe even people you're sitting in church with. If people don't have a genuine faith in God that expresses itself in care for God's people, Jesus will know and Jesus will say to them words like this, as in the parable, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus tends to be rather narrow-minded when it comes to places in heaven. He's looking for those who, by faith, belong to him as followers. And it isn't faith if you're merely a good, nice person. It isn't faith if you don't choose to serve him as Lord. And he judges people for that.
Now, most people in the world would agree that if God is anything, then we want him to judge injustice and wrongdoing. We want to live where ultimately people, bad people don't get away with their crimes. The Lord who judges is the God we want. But at the same time, the Lord who judges is the God people don't want. Not if it means they'll have to stop and consider his will. Not if it means they'll have to serve and acknowledge his will before their own. If we're wise, we'll recognise the reality which appears from the third page of the Bible right through to the very last. And that reality is that the world has a Lord who judges. It's unavoidable. And as we recognise that, we'll seek a right relationship with him now because the Lord who judges is the God we don't want to judge us. Joel spoke of God's judgment on the nations in terrifying terms. So in verse 16, he talked about how the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and sky will tremble. So you can't blame, can you? they hear, when the Israelites heard that, heard that, you wouldn't blame them if they thought, fearful, that feared it a bit, that maybe they'd get caught up in it. After all, the valley of Jehoshaphat is a valley just south of Bethlehem, which is not very far north of Jerusalem, where the people would have been when he made this prophecy. It looks, you could understand, if the Israelites feared a bit of ancient collateral damage. You know collateral damage is that term the American military invented to refer to when, in a military engagement, civilian people or property are unintended victims. Of course, a good example of a sad example of it is when there's an airstrike based on bad intelligence and they're successful, but they turn out to have... uh, Um, dropped bombs on a school or a hospital. I don't think anyone had heard of collateral damage 30 years ago before the first Gulf War. Certainly not the people in Joel's time. But they were right to fear God is so powerful that maybe it could overflow and we're close by. And if they feed that, then the prophet Joel reassures them. Look at verse 16 again, but the second half. So the law will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a secure stronghold. All this must have warmed the fearful, mistreated Israelites' heart. They needed to continue to seek refuge in the Lord so as to avoid the judgment. Last week we saw that the coming of the Spirit to live in God's individual people didn't begin to be fulfilled, though it was promised in Joel 2, it didn't begin to be fulfilled until in the first century after Jesus rose and ascended to heaven. And this promise of refuge for the people has, and also at the same time, a wonderful fertility free of abusive invaders that's in chapter 3, has never been true of Israel since Joel's time. So we're still waiting for the fulfilment, which is why 
as we've seen, God's people are called to patient, enduring faith. As we come, as I, and I want to now take you back to the book of Revelation for, this, for a final picture of a new Jerusalem, of a city of refuge from sickness, death, injustice and judgment. A city where God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit dwell with their people. It's a beautiful, fertile city with a river flowing out of her, just like there in Joel chapter 3, it describes a river coming out of Jerusalem and making fertile all the land. Well, here it is restated in bigger and better terms in a way that we can hold on to and put our hope in. So we're going to turn to the very last chapter of the Bible. Don't need to tell you the page number because just, you just need to keep turning till you find it. It's chapter 2 of Revelation. Sorry, chapter 22 of Revelation. And pick it up at verse 1 and let's see this river. Notice what this river does and what this river is. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That city is a place to look forward to. Notice that for those people of the nations who want it, it's possible to avoid judgment and experience healing from the curse of sin and judgment that humanity's lived under ever since Adam and Eve. In Joel's time, it was Israel and the nations, but now uh, things have come through and through the Lord Jesus. All the nations can come and become one of God's people. Through living in this city, uh, people are safe from God's judgment and they get to eat and drink the bounty there. But how do you get to live in the city? Well, let's look just above where we, where we were reading. I want to ask you to look up to verse 24 in chapter 21. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. To enter the city of refuge with all God's other people, with Israelites and with non-Israelites, you need to have what? Look at it there, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, you need to be in Jesus' contact list. Now, some people put anyone and everyone in their phone contact list for convenience, I guess. Others are more selective. They only put people with whom they have a relationship. Jesus is like that. The one who on earth could read hearts and minds the one who knows, who wants to relate to him and serve him, he knows 
who has a genuine faith in him. He knows who wants to have a relationship with him and he puts us in his contact list. To be in Jesus' contact list is like a pass into eternity and it's pictured here for anyone. It's a refuge from judgment, a refuge from God's wrath, a place where it's a refuge from death and pain and injustice. There's no sin inside the city of God that is to come. The Lord who judges is the God we want. He will make this world a better place. The Lord who judges is the God we don't want to judge us. So take refuge in him through the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your love and care for us. Thank you for being the God who judges and has the power to execute your judgments. Lord, we, we pray that you'd have mercy on the people we think of, the people we know. We pray you would help people to realise that they are under your wrath. We pray, Lord, by your spirit, you'd turn them to yourself. Help us to live as good ambassadors of you. And Father, we thank you that as we know, as having turned to you, that we're in the Lamb's book of life and can look forward to the great city of refuge for eternity. Amen.